Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, Lord. And uh, passages such as that we're looking at this morning, um, just the, the majesty of Jesus as we see the grace with which he deals with people, deals with us. We praise you for that. We pray you'd open our eyes, Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that understand what you have for us individually this morning, what you have for us as a church. And we thank you. We thank you for your love and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> In John chapter 7, we looked at the Feast of Tabernacles. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus standing up on the last great day of the feast, this, the, the solemn day, the quiet day, where it was a solemn procession that the priests did. And unlike, you know, where they were singing the Psalms, the Hillel Psalms, remember, they would do that for the first seven days of this feast. And then the last day, the great day of the feast, was a solemn day. And, and he stood up in the middle of that and, and he said, is anybody thirsty? And come and drink the water that I give you, and from your innermost being will gush forth rivers of living water. And then after that, we saw last week where it's like every time the guy opened his mouth, there was a division with the people. And no mistake about that. That's still the case. We talked about that today. I mean, Jesus divides. He said, you know, I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. And he's not talking about a sword as a physical weapon, but he's talking about he divides. He divides families. He divides groups. He divides, <laughs> I, I'm just not going to go there. I, I could rabbit trail on that big time right now, but I got a lot of ground to cover. So the point is, is that people get divided and they got divided over him at, towards the end of chapter seven. They're saying, well, some people say, well, he's the prophet and say, well, some say he's the Christ. And they say, well, you know, he came out of Galilee. Uh, so, and we thought that the Messiah was coming out of uh, Judah and Bethlehem, you know, so what gives there? And you know, they didn't understand his background and where he had indeed come from. Uh, and so this whole deal arose, and then the religious leaders have to chime in, and they had sent, remember, officers to go and seize him, and the officers got close. Jesus is teaching in the temple. The officers get close, and they stop. They start listening to this guy. Pretty soon they're drawn in. And, and, and the way that Jesus spoke, the way that he taught, uh, was captivating. And these guys were captivated by him. And they come back to the religious leaders empty-handed and they say, well, where is he? And, and he, they said, wow, nobody ever talked like that before. And they're still enamored with the things that he had said. And, and, and they, oh, you know, what are you with him too? Have you been deceived also? And they go through this whole deal. And then Nicodemus speaks up. And uh, in verse 51, he says, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And so Nicodemus, remember back in John chapter 3, he's called the teacher of Israel. Okay, this guy was, he was an important guy. He was a skilled teacher in the law. And so what he does is he essentially does what we do well to do as well. He refers them to God's word. He says, wait a minute, doesn't God's word say that we have a responsibility to hear, before we accuse someone, don't we have a responsibility to hear their side? 
and you know, of course, they get on him and they answer and they say, are you from Gal- or also from Galilee? And they said, search and look, no prophets arisen out of Galilee, which was absolutely false. Uh, I could name three of them. I, Jonah comes to mind. I, I think I had the others last week. But the point is, is there's this division going on in, in the middle of this whole deal. Uh, and then we get to... to uh, verse 53, we did not cover that, by the way, last week. That's why we start with 7.53 this morning. And a very profound verse, this is everybody went home. <laughs> and, uh, essentially, that's it. It's actually the reason why I've separated this, and I want to address this for a minute. There are those that, and, and there are many scholars that are divided over 7.53, from chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, I was talking with a brother here, I don't know, last week or the week before about uh, there are those that say this shouldn't be included in the canon of the scripture. Well, and my position is you can take it out if you want. I'm going to leave it in. It's there. It's beneficial. It glorifies Christ. It states his mission. We see the grace of God at work. We see that he is both truthful and gracious with this woman. And so in defense of this passage, Again, we might get there and find out that it's been omitted. I don't know. And I really, frankly, don't care. It's there, and I believe that it's included for our edification. So we're going to teach it, and this is God's word. And that's the the approach that we're going to have. So um, like I said, uh, some people say it's up for grabs. My position is, you know, we're we're just looking at it and taking it at face value. So uh, 753, when it says everybody went to their own house, got to remember now, this was the day before that we're looking at in chapter 8, and it was the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. They had been living in these little lean-to huts, remember? So by way of significance in this verse, it's just clarifying, okay, this is the end of the feast, So now everybody's going home. They're going back to their houses. They're not going to go back to their little huts that they had during this past eight days. And that's the reason why I believe John included this passage, this verse in this passage. Uh, And then it says that, but Jesus went in chapter eight, verse one, he went to the Mount of Olives. Now that was his custom. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a big event like a concert or camping with a group of people or hiking or whatever. A lot of times you prearrange, you know, if you get lost, meet me back down there at the corner. You know where the stoplight is. You know, there's a bus stop on the left and, you know, by the antique store, you know, or whatever. And they didn't have cell phones, obviously. They didn't have any way to keep track of each other. The temple is a big place. Okay, the temple complex, a thousand feet by a thousand feet, roughly. I mean, it was a huge area, three football fields, more than three football fields long. So, and hundreds of thousands of people going to these national feasts in Israel. And so they would prearrange and Jesus, his prearranged place, I believe, was in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, down at the bottom of the the Kidron Ravine, and he would meet his guys there. There were also, just by way of background, it's not something that's stated in the word, there were also caves in this area. And it wouldn't surprise me if Jesus and his men stayed in caves. I mean, uh, he says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So I just think about the humility and and the the lifestyle that Jesus had. He came to this feast. He would prearrange to meet with his guys after the, the busy day at the feast. And so he goes back to the Mount of Olives, walks down. It's a very short walk from the Temple Mount 
to the Garden of Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives. It's right at the base of the Mount of Olives, and it's just up off the bottom of the Kidron Valley. And, and, and when you think of the Kidron Valley, don't think like this big, broad valley, like, you know, uh, <laughs> the valleys around here. It's, it's a ravine, okay? Uh, one of the things that I noted when I was in Israel, both times in Israel, looking at uh, the geography, is that we get these kind of these big, expanse, type views of things and events in God's word. And it's this dinky little place. I remember standing there looking at where David fought Goliath in the little valley there. Again, there's a creek running down the, the middle of this thing. The Philistines are on one hill and him and the guys from Israel on the other side. And it's maybe, you know, a hundred yards across from one side to the other. It's just a little place. And so here, this Kidron Ravine is a small area, and he goes from the, the, the Temple Mount, the Temple Complex, to uh, uh, the Mount of Olives. So as we get into this text, uh, verses 2 through 11, I'm uh, just going to talk about he and his interactions with the woman. It's interesting, the Bible doesn't tell us her name, uh, and I don't believe that it's important. I believe, I truly believe that we will see her when we get there. Uh, I believe that her life was transformed here on the Temple Mount in the middle of a huge crowd in some very unpleasant circumstances for her. And as we look at this, it is sort of leading up to the second of the great I am statements in the Gospel of John. Okay, we saw a few weeks back where uh, Jesus stated, I am the bread of life. And here we're going to see that he says, I am, using the covenant name for God from Exodus chapter 3, ego ami, I am the light of the world. But there's an event that drives this statement. And the event is, is what we look at in, in verses 2 through 11 here. And it's the beginning also. I think about, you know, when you look at passages in the New Testament, uh, when I want to look at passages that include perhaps a heated debate, um, the book of Galatians, that's the hottest letter in all of God's word. Paul is hopping mad. He is just angry. I mean, he says some things in there. These guys want to compel you to be circumcised? Fine, let them essentially castrate themselves. I mean, he's very hammered down with the people that were coming in with false doctrine. If you want to look at areas or places in the Gospels where there is a heated deal, I think about towards the end of Matthew, Matthew 24, 25, 23, 24, 25, and there, and Jesus is hammered down with the Pharisees when he pronounces the woes upon them, the seven woes. Also, and, and when he is, I mean, he is poking the religious leaders in the chest. That is what happens in, in John chapter 8. Uh, it is a heated argument. It is a heated interchange and exchange between he and the religious leaders uh, of what was going on. We're not going to get so much into that today because we're going to focus on uh, the woman. But essentially, their first plan had failed. Remember, they sent the cops out for him. They uh, sent the, 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 the police, essentially. It was with the police in that day when they sent the soldiers out to go and get him. And they came back empty-handed. So now they've cooked up another scheme, and they're trying to trap Jesus. And, and it says that in, in the dialogue here. Uh, and in verse 2, we see it says that now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and sat down and he sat down and taught them. 
The day before, when he had stood up and shouted about drink the water that I give you and from your innermost being, when he fulfilled, as it were, the prophetic aspect of the, the water gushing forth from the rocket horb. Remember, we looked at that in Exodus chapter 17 and, and stunned the people with that statement because they would have been blown away. They knew what he was talking about. This is the day after the feast. This is a day, you know, sort of on the end of the camping trip when everybody gets up in the morning, you have breakfast and you start packing up and go home. It's, I always look at that. It's like, oh, I just want to stay and have some more fun. And, and the people here, I believe that there were probably a lot of people that decided, you know, we're going to follow this rabbi. He is saying some very, very significant things, and he is really getting the crowd's attention. It says that everybody came to him and, and when he sat down to teach. Uh, interesting, we see in verse 20 that he is teaching in the treasury. And we'll look at some slides in a few minutes, but that's significant in this story, and, and we'll get to why as we go along. But it's in the court of the women, all right? And, and again, we'll look at that. He's in the treasury. He, and what these, the, the rabbis would do is they would go and they would sort of stake out a place, you know, maybe a particular favorite column or something, but they would stake out, out a place in either the court of the Gentiles, which is a huge area, or the court of the women now, which is in the temple proper. And it's a much smaller area, but there's still, um, you could fit a lot of people in this place. Uh, at any rate, he's in the court of the women at the treasury, and, and he's teaching. And it's, the rabbis would, like I said, they'd go and they'd, they'd sort of stake out a place, they'd sit down, they'd begin to teach. And uh, I was thinking about this as I was preparing, I was thinking, I don't know if I'd want to be the guy teaching next to where Jesus was teaching. <laughs> it's kind of like, maybe I should just pack up and go home. Uh, because he was drawing huge crowds. He was extremely popular at this point, very controversial, and yet very popular. And so these huge crowds are coming to him as he begins to teach. It says that in verse 3 that the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This is a catch-22 for Jesus. Uh, we talked about this a little bit. Remember back when we looked at, at Jesus being full of grace and truth. We actually referenced this passage because he's very gracious, very truthful with the woman here. And yet they were trying to put him in a vice. And they had engineered a good one on this. I mean, I see man's wisdom all over this thing. I mean, this looked like a no-win situation for Jesus. Uh, if he says, yeah, that's right, stone her, they would have lit out of there and gone and grabbed the Romans and said, this guy is going against Roman law because the Romans had taken away the right of the Jewish leadership to pronounce a death sentence on someone. And this was a capital crime. And, and so they're saying, yeah, well, the law says to stone her. What do you say? So if he says to stone her, then they're going to tell the Romans that here's a political insurrectionist. He's going against Rome and you need to grab him. But if he says, don't stone her, they're going to accuse him of being an infidel as far as the law of Moses goes. So either way, they've got him. That's what they're thinking anyway, because and, and, and it was totally a trap. They didn't care about justice. They didn't care about the woman. And so they want to 
have, they don't care which side he falls on because they figure they've got him either way. In verse 6, and they said this, testing him, that they might have something with which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Again, their motive is revealed when it says that they said this testing him. They're testing him to find grounds to accuse him. They're not, they're not concerned with the woman. I personally believe, and, and it doesn't say in the text, but my own opinion on this is that they set her up. Because there is no man. I mean, it's not rocket science to think that if you're caught in the act of adultery, there should be more than one person showing up there when they come and they thrust her down in, their, in his presence. And it, it's just, I mean, the whole thing stinks. Now, does that mean that she wasn't an, an adulteress? No, I don't think so. I believe that they probably had grounds. And she may have had a pretty colorful background. I mean, you know, that, that's very possible. It doesn't give us a lot of her background, but it does tell us that she was caught in the very act and Jesus doesn't argue with them about that. So here's the picture. This, Jesus is there. He's teaching. He's giving a Bible study, right? I mean, because that's what he was doing. He's probably reasoning from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. I mean, that's what these guys did. That's what the rabbis taught. And so here Jesus is giving a Bible study. There's a huge crowd there. And then there's this, this you hear this scuttle going on. And, and, and everybody maybe stops and looks and cutting through the crowd. You have these religious leaders, this group of men, and they've got this woman. And I don't, and I don't know if she was just blown away and stunned and they drug her in or if she was kicking and screaming and biting. And if she was, I hope she bit a couple of them. But, you know, I, I don't know. It doesn't say, but, but you got to realize this woman knew what she had been caught in. And she knew that her life was on the line. And these people were not kind to people who were caught in that way. The law commanded that both the man and the woman should be stoned. And of course, again, they're not interested in carrying out the letter of the law. They're interested in getting Jesus and, and all of that. So, but in a larger sense, this is talking about sin. Yeah, that particular sin is the one that this woman was guilty of. But when you think about the point that John is making as he writes this, he's talking about sin and he's talking about God's attitude towards sin. He's talking about God's response towards sin. And we got to realize God never endorses sin. And Jesus never tells this woman, oh, honey, it's okay. And he wouldn't because sin is sin. It's why he came. And yet we also know that it's the kindness of God that leads a person to repentance, that leads a person to change their mind about their own life. And she does, I believe she does, because her responses to him indicate clearly that there's a change that's gonna happen. So it says that he knelt down and acted like he just didn't even hear what they were saying. He just knelt down and started writing on the ground. I'm gonna look at a couple of slides here. All right, could you hit the lights, Richard, up here? That uh, helps a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Chuck, could you grab the back lights? Thank you. It's important. I always like to give a point of reference geographically for these things. Number one, they really happen. Number two, this is a real place. It doesn't exist anymore because Jesus prophesied that it wouldn't. Oh, much better. All right. I want to look at, this is the Temple Mount. As I mentioned, 
that whole area is like a thousand feet long, huge area. Uh, the two large areas on each side of the temple proper are called the court of the Gentiles. And there's a, a little line you can see just outside the gates or the walls of the temple. It's called the Sorig. And the, the Gentiles could go up to the Sorig, but they couldn't go across that. That was for Israelites only, for, for the Jews only after that. Going into the temple proper, the first area going in was called the court of the women. And this is where the treasury was located. All right, next slide, please. Just zooming up on that, uh, you can see that it was this, uh, there's a complex in there and the treasury is in one of those buildings in there and that's how we can locate, this is where Jesus was teaching when he was there that morning, the day after uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, teaching the crowd and they brought the woman in. Uh, from the ground, next slide, from the ground, if you were looking from the door in, it would be a huge open courtyard lined with colonnades and the colonnades were, they would, create a roofed area for people to get in out of the sun. Again, it doesn't look so big here, but this is a very substantially large area. And the thing I wanna, I wanna note about this is it says that Jesus stooped down to write on the ground. There's no dirt here. I don't know how many commentaries I've read over the years that they say, well, Jesus stood down, you know, he stepped down and he began to write in the dirt. No, he didn't. <laughs> This was made out of stone. It was probably marble. So, and then I, I read uh, one commentary, I think yesterday, the day before, uh, where it said that, well, he was writing in the dust on the stone. And I'm thinking, why does everybody get so caught up in trying to figure out how he wrote and what he wrote? That's not the point. I think if it was the point, if it was important, God would have revealed that in the text here. That's not the point. In Exodus chapter 31, I believe we see the point. 31.18, it says, When God had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, that he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. This is the second time that God is writing on, actually the third, that God is writing on stone. And I totally believe and, and uh, that it's not important what he wrote, but it's important that here, Jesus, God in the flesh, they come in, they cite the law of Moses. They say, well, the law says this, the 10 commandments say this, Jesus, what do you say? And he stoops down and he begins to write on stone. <laughs> and I think it's remarkable. And I think that it's remarkable that it doesn't tell us what he wrote, but I believe that the lesson isn't there. The lesson is in the fact that he wrote. And I don't think he wrote on the dust. I think that he began to write the finger of God writing in stone. Last time that happened, he outlined adultery. In verse seven, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. This is the second most misquoted verse in all of the Bible. You know what the first one is? I think it's in Matthew chapter seven. Judge not. How many times have you heard people say, well, judge not. Well, well, well judge not lest you be judged. Again, drive-by commentators. <laughs> they just kind of fire out the window and hope it hits somebody. Uh, the point is, is that, you know, people will try, people in the world, especially, 
asserting that they don't want to deal with their own sin. Well, 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 if he who's without sin among you, let him throw the, cast the first stone. You know, and I've heard that so many times over the years. It's like, guys, that's not what's being addressed here. And it's not an excuse or a covering for sin. Jesus, like I said, he doesn't cover this woman's sin. He will go to the cross and he will eliminate, he will die for this woman's sin. But that's not what it's about. Interesting. The word without sin, it's one Greek word here. It's uh, anamartetos um, or anamartetos. <laughs> it literally means perfect. It's the only place in the Bible this word is used. It's only used in one place. And literally what Jesus is saying is he who, among you who is perfect, you go ahead and be the first one to pitch a rock at this lady. It changes the whole meaning, gang. It, it, it does, because he's essentially not saying he who is without sin, in other words, sins, because we get caught up. We want to talk about sins. Jesus came to die for sin. Sins are a manifestation of our nature. And we could get, again, I, religion wants to go down and, and you know name sins. And we could all go down and we could name different sins and we could come up with quite a list. When we realize that we inherit the nature of Adam and that Jesus came to not just give us a covering for sins, but to eliminate sin, nature, to give us a new nature for that old nature to be crucified with Christ, to be buried with him, and to be resurrected to what? Newness of life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work that he does. And so... These guys want to nail her down on sins, and he's elevating it, saying, no, no, no. No. He among you who is perfect. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says there's two ways to get to God. Number one, you can believe in me. Or number two, you can be perfect in every conceivable way. He, remember, he goes through all of these deals. He outlines the letter of the law and contrasts it with the spirit of the law. And, and then he says, therefore, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. That is not the Christian law. That is actually, he is teaching the opposite. He's saying, you know what? You got two ways to God. You got utter perfection in every conceivable way. Or you've got the grace of God that comes by faith in the finished work of Christ. Which one are you going to choose? And essentially, that's what's going on here. He's not trying to nail these guys down and say, you know, those of you that haven't sinned, he's saying, any of you guys are perfect? You guys think that you're the judge and the arbiter here? Think again. Look at your own life. Very often, you know, when dealing with someone in sin, there are times, straight up, there are times to lovingly confront. There are times where for that person's good. But I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, these are not times where we go with an arrogant or a haughty attitude. Those times are usually accompanied by tears. I got to tell you something, it hurts me. I love you enough to tell you the truth kind of things. And, and I just don't want to see your life. You know, I, I see the train, you know, I see the light come in and, and, and the train on the tracks and I, I, I want you to get off the tracks, that kind of thing. I, I want you to, to repent of your sin. I want, I want you to get out of this area. I've had people do that with me. Yeah, hey, I've sinned. And I've had people do that with me very lovingly, very caring, never like this. Never like this. 
They were condescending, arrogant, prideful. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, if a brother is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, go and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, lest you be tempted and fall into the snare of the devil. What's the snare? Spiritual pride. That you can actually go, you can sin in your effort to go and restore, restore a sinning brother or sister. There's a, there's a way to do that. And you know what? That doesn't come about until there has been a truckload of prayer that has gone into, Lord, is that something you want me to do? Place to be very, very careful, folks. Uh, pray first. And then pray some more. And then maybe some more. And in the event the Lord puts it on your heart to go and to talk to someone who's in a trespass, and I'm not talking about sniffing out other people's sin. There's a difference. A sin is kind of realizing, oop, I'm in the farmer's field. I need to get out of here. I'm not supposed to be here. Trespass is I get up to the edge of the farmer's field and I see the sign that says, don't trespass, and I go anyway. All right? Sin is missing the mark. Trespass, trespass is a willful act. And you've got to realize he's talking about people that are engaged in willful acts. All right, this woman was. She knew what she was doing. And yet she discovers the grace of God in the midst of all of this. Verse 8, and again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Interesting. Moses came down from the mountain the first time. Pardon me. And the people were partying, remember, in Exodus? And he had the two tablets of the testimony. He came down and he ended up smashing the tablets. The ones that God had written with his finger. And uh, he had to go back up on the mountain and get some new ones. And God had to write again. And so here Jesus, he starts writing. And, and again, just by, it's an interesting parallel. I, I, I'm not trying to make it walk on all fours here. But it's very interesting that Jesus writes twice. In the same way that God, with Moses, wrote twice. Anyway, he stoops down and he writes again on the, uh, on the ground. And verse 9, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, and that's interesting, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest and even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Why the oldest? Again, the Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, perhaps those who were more seasoned with life would have a pretty good idea that they had sin in their life. Perhaps they were the ones that were the leaders in the bunch and Jesus had addressed them with what he wrote. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that beginning with the oldest, i.e. the most respected of them, dropped their rocks and left. They were convicted it says, when they saw it, they were convicted by their conscience. It didn't say they were convicted by the Holy Spirit, and, and that's true. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. But we all have a conscience. It, the problem is our conscience has fallen, and we can make a rationalization pretty quickly for sin, can't we, if left to ourselves. That's why the Holy Spirit's conviction is far better. Verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Nobody ever did this before. This isn't what they did. 
this is totally, again, we read the end, we know this story. This is a very well-known story in the Bible. But picture going through this for the first time. Picture being there on the ground in front of the treasury in the court of the women in the temple and you're thrust down in front of this guy. These guys all have big rocks and they're getting ready to use them. And this rabbi from Galilee says some things, does some things. You see him do this right on the ground thing that we don't fully understand, but we can sure take some things from the Old Testament about. And everybody leaves. It didn't happen until Jesus. Another interesting word, the word accusers, the Greek word for that is kategoros. It's where we get the word categorize, and that's exactly what these guys did. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector there in Luke chapter 18. I want to just read a couple of verses here. Not going to do a lot of commentary on it, but it says, Two men went up to the tr- temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He's categorizing. He's categorizing. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's the same word. The tax collector, standing afar off, uh, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And I'd submit to you that this day, there in the court of the women in the temple, this woman was humbled. Since they caught her in the very act, probably somebody had to grab something to cover her up with on the way. And there's not a small crowd there. Think of the humiliation. Yes, was she sitting? Yes, she was. But think of the humiliation. She wouldn't forget this day. And he stands and he says, where are your accusers? Where are those ones who would categorize you with the rest of the scum? Because they were so arrogant, so stuck in their spiritual pride that they never took a time to look at themselves. Verse 11, she said, no one, Lord, that's significant. She addresses him as Lord. And I'll bet before this, she didn't address him as Lord, and her life showed that. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. He gives two statements. He says, I don't condemn you. Then he says, go and sin no more. Now, he wasn't telling this woman to go and never sin again. That's kind of a silly interpretation. That's not the point. I like the way it's rendered in the New International Version. He says, go and leave your life of sin. In other words, I've touched your life here today. I want to be Lord in your life. Let that show by the manner in which you conduct your life. Leave your life of sin. Great exhortation, but a loving exhortation because he says, I'm not here to condemn you. In John, remember in John 1.17, um, it says, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. 
we see in one statement, I don't condemn you. Grace. Go and leave your life of sin. Truth. Perfect balance here. Because to have one without the other, to be truthful but not gracious, unkind, would be what these guys were doing when they came and they threw her down in front of him. It's harsh. It's condemning. And that's not God's will. But to be gracious at the expense of truth is to be flattering and, and to be excusing away sin as though it wasn't a big deal. It is a big deal. He would go to the cross for this. And God calls upon us in our dealings with others to absolutely have grace and to be gracious while being truthful. There are hard things. Like I said, we sometimes have to say hard things. There are times where my wife says hard things to me or me to her. And, and it always, it, Paul told Timothy, he said, let your speech be seasoned with grace. It has to be. What's the basis of God's forgiveness of every sin I've ever thought, said, or done? It's grace. It's grace. And he is the embodiment of grace. He is pouring out his grace on this woman in dealing with her as he did. He didn't accuse her, or excuse away her sin, but he was so gracious. Also very honest with her. Your lifestyle stinks. You need to do something different here. And he doesn't get in her face like that, but that's essentially what he's saying. You know, that is not a lifestyle that's going to be pleasing to God. Our sin is never pleasing to God. It separates us from him. And so what his will is, is that we come to a place of simply changing our mind about sin. And that's what he was doing with this woman. That's what repentance is. It's not, I mean, it's a very well-used biblical word, and it's an accurate word, but it simply means to change your mind. It means to stop thinking this way and think that way. It means, you know, you're traveling down the highway and you're going headlong into whatever it is in rebellion. God touches your heart. He convicts your heart by his Holy Spirit. You realize the direction you're headed and you throw that baby into a four-wheel slide and you punch it going the other direction. That's repentance. Something that we don't get when we look at the biblical narrative is I wonder, I really wonder, guys, at the eye contact going on here. I, I just, you know, this woman looking up, looking into the eyes of Jesus, and he says, where are your accusers? Oh, well, they're gone. And she looks back at him. And seeing a love that she had probably never known I don't accuse you. I don't condemn you either. Now go and leave your life of sin. What a beautiful scene this turns out to be. I'm going to go back in time a little bit. Uh, no, well, not a little bit. Over 770 years, nearly 800 years before this to the, the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 9, uh, well, in chapter 8, Isaiah is outlining the fact that the Assyrians are encamped about northern Israel and they are getting ready to thrash the country. And they did thrash. They, they dismantled the northern kingdom. And in the middle of this whole indictment on the northern kingdom, who was an abject rebellion towards God, and God was using the Assyrians as an instrument for his judgment against them, he stops and he pauses through Isaiah and Isaiah begins to prophesy. 
in verse or in chapters um, seven to twelve in the book of Isaiah, some people refer to it as a book within the book. And no, that doesn't mean there's more than one Isaiah. We talked about that. Harvey mentioned three Isaiahs. I was reading some stuff yesterday. They were talking about four Isaiahs. So no, there was one Isaiah. Jesus talked about one, and, and that's good enough for us. Anyway, um, chapters seven through twelve are, are sort of looked at as a book within the book. The Emmanuel passages, uh, prophetically speaking, of the coming Messiah. And in prophetic literature in the Bible, very often you see a near fulfillment, and then you see a far fulfillment, and that can jump around. It jumps around a lot in, in chapter um, 9 here. We're, not gonna, we're only going to look at one verse. I had the whole chapter included, or not, but I had like verses 2 through 7 originally included, but I knew that I would run out of time, so I was being merciful to you guys. But um, he starts out talking about uh, this that this great light would come to Galilee of the Gentiles. And um, in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this great light to shine upon Galilee of the Gentiles. He talks about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And those are the northern tribes. Naphtali is a huge area, and it covers the Sea of Galilee, and where Jesus was going to Capernaum at the, uh, after he got ousted from Nazareth. That's what it's talking about when he set up his ministry there. And Matthew very specifically says, Jesus is the fulfillment of the great light that's to shine in this land. Okay, so when he says that, uh, in Isaiah 9-2, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, or in other translations, it says, or deep darkness... Upon them, a light has shined. When Jesus came onto the scene, he was the fulfillment of that light. As we look at now, we look at what it means in, in, in chapter 8, just going back there, uh, verse 12. As Jesus wraps up with this woman, remember, this event precipitated the statement that we're about to look at. He was being the light of the world to this woman. He was demonstrating the light, not just giving commentary on it, okay? Uh, and he says, he says, he spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness. And there is the word there. It's not in the, te the original text, but there's a definite article there in, in front of darkness. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. He speaks of the world. He says, I'm the light of the world. Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined, we see this word world, cosmos. It's stated 15 times between those three Gospels. In the Gospel of John, 77 times. Significant. John has great insight on what this term cosmos is about. He brings it out over and over and over again in this Gospel. He shines light, or Jesus is the one who shines light on the systems of the world. That's what the world means. It's the systems of the world. It's not talking about the physical 
world in the context that, that John is bringing it out here. He's talking about the evil systems that are governing this world and the evil systems that the adherents to the world are involved in. And so what Jesus is doing is he's basically saying this woman was stuck in darkness. And I, as the light of the world, came in to shine light, the light of God, on this woman's life. And in doing so, the lights came on with her, and she now became a possessor of that light. Remember when he said, drink the water that I give you, and from your innermost being will flow forth rivers of living water. He's saying the water is going to change locations from me to you. Because when we come to him, we do have this indwelling of the spirit that comes in. And so now instead of this water coming at me from the outside, it's emanating from inside of me and radiating outwards. It's the same thing with the light of God. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll have this light. And, he's, and what's happening here is there's this divine exchange. He says, you give me your sin. You give me your broken life. And I will give you light. I will give you life. I will give you the spirit without measure. A beautiful thing that's going on here. Man, in general, does not do well at governing himself. And I'm not just talking about the government. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at you, some people, I mean, and I'm not going to get into a whole political deal here, but you know, look at the governments around us. I mean, they're oppressive governments. Look at the, the government in North Korea that we're dealing with now. And I, I mean, it's essentially been said that the whole nation is a prison camp, <laughs> essentially. I mean, oppressive, evil governments. But it's not just that. Look at marriages. Only by pride comes contention, the Bible tells us. And yet, people get stuck in their pride and it's like, that's it. I'm not going any further. That's having a marriage on the world's terms, not God's. Not God's. This woman wanted to run her life on her terms and it didn't work. It was completely against God and his revealed will. And yet Jesus said, you know what? And I'm, I'm reading between the lines here. I've got a better way for you to live. I'm the light of the world and I want you to follow me and to take this light. And you can have the light of life. Marriages, relationships, governments. We live on a fallen planet. And what Jesus is saying by this is that you can have illumination in your life. Not illumination to the world's ways, but to God's. Do you know how when you go to read the Bible, those of you who have been believers for a while, you go to read the same passage and it, you get something totally different out of it? That's divine illumination. That's the light of life at work. That's the Holy Spirit illuminating that thing in a different way because God has you in a different place. You know how when you're talking to somebody and they say something and you and they will never know how profoundly God used them. I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me. And I'll walk away and maybe one sentence that they said will just stick. And the Holy Spirit will say, you know, John, that was for you. That was for you. I want you to pay attention to that. And it, it, it just kind of gets 
it just lays there on, on you. And, and that's the light of life. That's the light of, of the divine illumination that he's talking about. This isn't a physical light. It's the light of God. My soul has been burdened lately at how easy it is for people to self-destruct. And I've thought about that a lot and prayed about it and said, Lord, left to ourselves, we truly do. We will self-destruct. Think of it, look, look at the huge epidemic of drug addiction, people who are in bondage. Look at the huge impact that alcoholism has had. These are people that are caught up in self-destructing. Look at what happens in marriages when we get stuck in our pride and we're going to have it our way instead of God's and that's it. Self-destruct. Oh, it'll be better without her, without him. And then that thing runs aground in a major way. These are critical issues. They're relevant issues for today. He says, follow me. I'll give you the light of life. I will give you illumination. I'll give you divine illumination on how to control, how to, how to run your life. And it won't be the way you want to. It wasn't the way this woman wanted to. But he had something better for her. He has something better for us. In speaking one line, Jesus showed light on their whole system. He exposed the Pharisees and their dead religiosity. He exposed his own heart to the sinner who was willing to turn to him for forgiveness. Wrap up with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, look at a couple of passages there. At the end of chapter 3, uh, I'm just going to paraphrase to set the context for chapter 4 here. Uh, the Old Testament was it was a fading covenant. The Old Covenant was a fading covenant uh, because it was based on man's faithfulness to God. That's what the law was. It said, do it and live, summed up. The New Covenant is it's done, so love. And Moses, he came down from being in God's presence. Remember, it says that his face was glowing. They had to put a towel over it because it was fading. Because Moses' glory... excuse me, was reflected. He'd been in the presence of God. Paul goes on to say that the glory that we have by being the vessels of God is a glory that's not reflected, it's radiated. There's a big difference. The, the light shines forth from us, not to us, to where we have this reflected glory that fades, we have this glory that's increasing, and we are being changed, it says, metamorphosed, like a caterpillar to a butterfly, from glory to glory. And so it's in that that he's talking about Moses' face being veiled and so on, that he uses those, and he uses kind of a springboard in chapter 4 here. In verse 3 he says, But even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled or hidden to those who are perishing because they have never appropriated by faith the fact that and, and or acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he says he did. Uh, and says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. 
This includes religious people. I know some of the hardest people for me to talk to are people that were just completely immersed in religion, like the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. They're very hard to reach because they think they're there. Why do they think they're there? Because the God of this world has blinded their eyes and they have cooperated with it. It's not something the devil made me do it and I didn't have anything I could say about it. No, they have allowed the God of this world to blind their eyes and they really do think they're there and they're not. Because it's personal. It's not adherence to a creed or to a denomination. It's a love relationship with a person. And when we miss that, we can allow the God of this world to blind our eyes. He's saying the people out there that have rejected the gospel, they're blind. They can't see it. They literally can't see it. That's why when you're sharing the Lord with somebody that's not a believer and, and you know, you're praying that they would step into God, that they'd get it, all of that, it's like when I see people's eyes glaze over, it's like they're kind of like, okay, they j I just lost them. I usually stop at that point and figure I'll pick it back up when their eyes aren't so glazed looking. But the point is, he says the gospel is veiled. He says in verse 5, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus' face is different has its own light, different than Moses. Moses was cooling off. He was a man. In the presence of God, glory was fading. In the presence of Christ, not going to happen. He's the radiance of God. Uh, Jesus uh, is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 1 as being the radiance or the outshining of God's glory in the exact rep representation of his nature. Interesting. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and we don't need to go back there, but I'll read it again, and then I want to I I relate it to this woman. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, upon them a light has shined. I took, and I, I took a little bit of, of uh, license, but I, I don't... I, just using the wording here, I, I rewrote this as it would apply to this woman, because... God's word is eternal in its application. And I wrote, this woman who walked in the darkness has seen a great light, a light which has exposed areas of her own heart, her own soul. She who dwelt in the world of deep darkness, upon her this light has shined. It's personal, folks. It was personal for this woman. You know, it doesn't say anything more about this woman. God's word is silent after this. And yet as I sat there just pondering these things, I, I just, I couldn't help but wonder. This was a profound, profound event in her life. She came in an adulteress, a sinful woman, and she left with a Lord in her life. And I would imagine, let's say that she went off, and, and again, this is me speculating, and I'm to be clear on that. And yet, these people had lives. That they didn't show up again doesn't mean that you know, she just dropped off the face of the earth. She had a life, and, and as that life went forward, 
I can't help but imagine there being a point perhaps when she's staring into the eyes of her child, having walked with the Lord long past the cross and the tears coming, remembering that day back in the temple courts where this rabbi touched her heart, touched her life. I can't help but imagine that perhaps as she looked at her husband as he slept, that the tears would come because she had this totally bankrupt a life that was adding to nothing in rebellion towards God and that she had something. She had depth. She had meaning. She had the Lord. I just, I marvel at the work of God. And as we look at these things, it's just important. And again, that, I, I say that's speculation. And yet there are times in the quietness of our own hearts that as the Lord deals with us, that I just encourage you, just let him fully in. If there are areas of sin that, that are, are trying to take hold or have taken hold, yield those to him. Stay current, stay fresh. Let the light of God illuminate the darkness in your heart. He's good at it. He doesn't come in and punch us in the gut and say, I want to get your attention. You will do what I say. You know, there, he's, that's not how he is. He's gentle, he's loving, he comes to us, he beckons to us, and he says, very often in my life, he said, John, won't you give me that? Won't you let me take that area of your life? Won't you let me do business with you in this way? And it's glorious. I, I love Hebrews 12. He says that, you know, when he chastises us as his children, that afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Wonderful, let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, oh, Lord, thank you for this brief look into your word as, uh, as we look at uh, these events in this woman's life and perhaps relate it to things in our lives. Not, not that all of us are adulterers or any of that, but, but that you just simply desire to touch our lives, to reach us, to deal with us, to speak to us, to love us where we're at and to give us the ability, Lord, to change our mind if that's where we're at. And if not, Father, we just rest in the fact that you've got our lives in, in the palm of your hand, and we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you are the Lord and that your love is poured out. We just appreciate you, Lord, so much. We pray that you would give us the rest of this day, uh, give us a good day, that you would be glorified in our lives. And we just uh, lift up the name of Jesus this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.